Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have very different life experiences from mine, and we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcome around this table. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. What happens when a literature professor who pays attention to the way humans tell stories turns her attention to the Bible and faith? You get the career of Dr. Jennifer Holberg and her new book called Nourishing Narratives. When it comes to reading books about faith, this experience for me was different and somewhat refreshing, actually. There's a beautiful blend of literary masterpieces woven in with modern stories and excerpts from the Bible. And the whole book is like having a companion walk with you as you think through how stories shape our lives. Dr. Holberg is a professor and the chair of the English Department at Calvin University and the co-director of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. We had a long pre-conversation before the official interview and found out that, among other things, like international travel, living abroad, participating in a wide variety of church denominations— We both have historic connections to and a fondness for Albuquerque, New Mexico. Not such a normal thing to have in common. I knew that as I was talking with an English professor, I wouldn't need to explain why I always ask my guests about how their own context growing up shaped the way we think about God and the Bible. She already knows the power of context in storytelling. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Yeah, I think that's so important. I would say in my own literature classes, we do spend time on that kind of context. So what did it mean that they're from this part of England? Right. Not just the sort of English or Irish or the difference between being English and Irish right. and that American right. students maybe don't understand. Like, no, that's quite different. And that has so much history and culture embedded in just the place you're from. And I will say one of the things from my childhood that my father and mother, but my father especially, was very much about was geography. And why did this town that we're driving through, you know, they're here because there was a river and a mountain and uh, access to all of these things or, you know, people chose poorly. And so they didn't thrive because they didn't have a river or a mountain or whatever it was. You know, I'm a military kid. So my father was a career army officer. So... I'm one of those people that's not really from anywhere, Yeah, but yet I moved nine times. So I moved and I lived mostly in the West when I was very small as a baby. My father went to one year of a course in Baltimore. But other than that, he was from Wyoming, small, small town in Wyoming, um, had grown up in that kind of area where, you know, we went fishing, we went camping. It was, you know, very wide open spaces and vast. And his great grandmother had come out on the Oregon Trail. So in the 70s, you know, with Little House on the Prairie and the Oregon Trail and the Bicentennial and all that kind of stuff, that was very important to think about, you know, people coming West. But also my parents were really interested in Indigenous peoples and how did that work and the interaction between those people groups. 
And so a lot of driving between military bases in the West as we would move was always sort of history and geography lessons. And then I had the opportunity as a child to live in Korea for three years and Japan for three years. So of my school years, you know, the 12 years of schooling, half of those I lived in in Asia. And that was fascinating as well. And my parents were very committed to always going out every weekend and visiting places and learning history and seeing, trying to learn a little bit more about the histories of those countries. And then I would also say that for me, that sort of the one constant in my life, well, maybe two, and I talked maybe a tiny bit about this in the book is reading books, right? The imaginative world and sort of exploring that geography, if you will, and then church. And I think that ties into your, you know, the kinds of teaching you're doing about the Bible. But, you know, every church that I went to in some ways is the same. That same annoying lady who was super bossy at your last church, whose name was, you know, Mildred or whatever. She's at your next church. She's just called, you know, Janice or something. And I think that kind of sense of being from church being from the the body of Christ, that was actually really important to me too, that even as we looked at differences and really celebrated the different cultures in which we lived, we did always also have a home place with fellow believers wherever we were. And my parents, we went to army church, so it was like lots of different denominations all together or people from you know, from Japanese Christians who would come and worship with us or us with them. And to me, that's also interesting. So when people say, where are you from? Not really from anywhere. And yet I kind of am. I'm kind of from the library and from church. I love that response. If I have to have a home, if I'm from anywhere, that those are kind of the places that were, you know, continuous. And now I've lived in Grand Rapids for 26 years. So I'm kind of from here now in funny ways. And yeah. I always never could imagine as a child what that would be like, someone who had always lived in a place. And yep, yep. And I started to sort of see that now that I've lived here a long time. I can see why people find it compelling. But as a little kid, I always thought it would be kind of boring because I got to live in all these places. Yeah. I mean, I lived in Tokyo. Like, how is that not cool? I mean, we lived a little outside of Tokyo. But, you know, when I was 14, I got to go into Tokyo by myself. Like, if I lived in Oklahoma, she had to drive us to the mall. Right. Which one are you going to pick? <laughs> it strikes me the, even if it was military church, I think, as you phrased it, but I think being with so many different kinds of people talking about faith, talking about the Bible, contextually being in different countries, different continents even, had to shape the way that you read the Bible or understood God. There's having so many different diverse perspectives together must have broadened and given you a little bit of space to that understanding. Like things aren't, aren't always so clear. There's not one singular interpretation of the Bible. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, very fair. And I would say my parents had come out of, my father was a congregationalist. My mother had grown up in the evangelical free church but my parents were very intellectually, are very, my father's still alive, very curious. And we had a lot of discussions at my table about doctrine and different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And they weren't just about kind of, well, this is what we're supposed to believe, but it'd be like, well, you know, this tradition thinks this and this tradition thinks this. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother was, my grandmother, I talk in the book about how my grandmother's house was just 
like overflowing with books, but she'd been born at the turn of the 20th century. So interested in the holiness movement. She read really widely in, which I didn't realize as a child, just how widely my old family was very theologically interested. But so my grandmother had read about all kinds of things. And, and my mother participated in stuff like International Christian Women's Club, where she'd go into Tokyo, and it was like women from lots of different perspectives. And one thing I really appreciate about the military church or army church was it was a place where sort of everything happened simultaneously. So when we took communion, if you came out of a tradition that you went down to receive it at, at a railing or something, you did that. And if you kneeled in the pew, you did that. And if you sat in the pew, you did that. And it was never a big deal, but it also wasn't the same. And so one of the things you had to be clear about in your own family was, well, why are we doing what we do? Hmm. Like, why would that be important to us? But also that it's not illegitimate for Colonel Smith to go forward and get it at the rail. There was lots of different things going on. And it was all okay because it was the body of Christ together. And we didn't all have to be the same, but you had to be clear about what your own thing was. Yeah, interesting. And I think that's really fascinating. I talk in the book about a story, you know, we all always shared space with Catholics. And so the mass would be either before or after our service. And, you know, there was one cross though, and they just flipped it around. So Jesus on the cross for mass and flip it around. No Jesus. But even that I think is a really, was an interesting lesson for me as a child, right? We would talk, we would, they would often in Sunday school or something, especially as we got older, we would have conversations with the priest or, you know, as the charismatic movement became bigger and bigger in the, like the seventies, people from that tradition. And, and there was just a lot more dialogue about the people that I know that grew up in a singular, right. You know, we're only Baptist, we're only Presbyterian, we're only Methodist. So don't really have a sense of this wider conversation. My whole childhood was about the wider conversation and kind of understanding that. And also really thinking about the strengths that each tradition brings, right? So, I mean, as a reform person, you know, I think we're really good at loving God with our minds. Like that is our gift to the church. Like we're very intellectual. And as someone who, you know, ended up getting a PhD, loved it, loved debate and let's talk about doctrine. But I remember one time when I was in uh, early, probably seventh grade, and there were a little couple of rows of our church that were people who were quite charismatic. And, you know, as a junior high girl who was very in her brain, was like, why are they, what is happening over there, you know? <laughs> and I remember sort of being a little dismissive or eye rolly. And my mother saying to me, what is it about their heart for God that offends you? Wow. And, you know, because they were having this very emotional response and I was like, oh my gosh, that's like, must we, you know, which is partly junior high girl, but is also very much a part of like brainy Christian kind of thing. And I was pretty, you know, thought about that, that that is something I was uncomfortable with, a kind of this kind of emotive heart for God or having an emotional response. And so I think my parents were very much about how can we learn, even mm. if we would say like, that particular approach is maybe not doctrinally what we would eventually embrace, but how can we learn from each other and how does worshiping together and then knowing those people. So I would, when I would be in a singular context, like, oh, well, you know, the only way is whatever the way, right. you know, right. I would think, well, have you met anybody else though? <laughs> 
<laughs> do you know they're lovely and their heart for Jesus? What can I learn from them? Mm-hmm. How can I know their story a little bit more? Yeah, so that was actually very important to me. I, I so I didn't grow up in a denominational context, and so some of these denominational wars that we're having right now. You know, I feel for people who have this strong home feel about their denomination, but I also feel that, you know, we're really bigger than that. And maybe that's part of our part of our discipling process is to continue to remember that Christianity yeah. is yeah. bigger than whatever the tradition is that we're in. I'd love to hear how you ended up getting a PhD in literature and is it the remnant of this grandmother who just has stacks of books all over the house? Is that part of what stirred the curiosity in you for word smithing and storytelling? Probably a lot of things. I grew up in a very readerly family. So every night we had family devotions, but we didn't just do the Bible. My father always was reading either out of a like a short story collection or we'd have a novel going. Mm -hmm. So I always grew up in a family where we read and that was just like end of the day. And then they would read from a Bible story book, you know, depending on our age or some kind of scripture or devotional or, and that was the way we ended every single day. I mean, until I went to college and even after that, we'd come home and my parents would still, would still do it. So very readerly family, I think because I moved so much And I was always someone who got their work done quickly (laughs) that from a very, I mean, even first grade, I remember the teacher saying to me, well, would you like to go spend some time with the librarian, which I saw as a big treat, but now of course understand that it's partly because they didn't have anything for me to do, but I'd trot off to the library and the librarian and I were always good buddies. And my mother would always say to me every day as I left for school, now, do you have a book with you? And if she knew I was close to being done, she'd say, do you have two books? And my parents would talk a lot about be low maintenance for the teacher. They didn't call it that, but learn how to be a learner. And, you know, I just always loved reading. And I had this grandmother who was a big reader and her mantra was always make sure you have a book in your purse at all times. And she always did. I went to college not really knowing. I thought about being a lawyer. I thought about being, you know, maybe a high school teacher. I knew I would probably go to graduate school. My father, when I was planning on where to go, he had said, you know, let's just get a really great, solid undergraduate education and then go anywhere you want for grad school. And so I had that in mind. And sort of slowly, I began to see that partly through the mentorship of my college professors who really, I was very blessed in the ways that people have taken an interest in me and given me opportunities to help them write their book, or I was able to tutor and sort of test out whether I wanted to be that. So it was sort of a slow process of realizing, oh, that thing you really love is a thing you could actually do for a living. And also, I'd always been very academically successful. So I that part wasn't sort of the question. It was sort of what area But I think it was a lot of opportunities that kind of confirmed vocation and parents who were not afraid of me doing something like English. My mother had been an English major. My father was a history major. So I ended up majoring in both of those things. And I mean, who wouldn't want to spend? I mean, you have very similar jobs. Like who wouldn't want to spend their job reading books and talking about them? Like that's amazing. What a gift, right? That's right. I do feel so privileged that especially in an academic job market that's as bad as it has been, 
even when I first came on the market, you know, to have a job at a great place where I get to do that, like, wow, that is just the cake and the icing. One of the things I like in Dr. Holberg's book, and it is a theme that runs through a lot of her other works as well, is she says that we are story-shaped people. I love this idea. And immediately when I read it, I thought about the Israelites being story-shaped people. I teach this all the time when I'm talking about ancient Israelite culture and the agricultural calendar. Because woven into the rhythms of their lives and the rhythm of the land was a repetition of the redemption story from Egypt and then the wisdom God gave them in the wilderness for how to be shaped by his own vision of the world. Their annual repetition of the story formed their identity. For those of you who attend a liturgically shaped church, you too have the experience of annually retelling the story of Christ through the feasts and the fasts of the church calendar. I wanted to explore the idea of being story-shaped people because it strikes me as being different from just saying that we learn best through story or that people appreciate a good storyteller. So what does differentiate the idea of being a story-shaped person? Part of the reason I wrote the book is there's a lot of books in this space that sort of talk about read the classics and you'll be a better person. And I'm not as interested in that. Um, When I sit on airplanes and people find out I'm an English professor, they're often apologetic because they say, oh, I only read mystery novels or I... (laughs) You know, I mostly watch the Marvel Universe or something like that. And I think that sort of shame around what you read is sort of unfortunate because I think that actually the fact that you read a lot of mysteries tells me something about you. And I'm someone who reads a lot of mysteries. So that's a sort of self-own, as my students would say. But because what do I like about a mystery? Well, there's the problem of evil that I'm interested in as a person of faith. But I'm also interested in what are the ways we go about in trying to solve that or maybe remedy it, even if only a little tiny bit. One of the things, and I think your example of the Israelites, right, one of the things they do over and over again is we need to get out the scrolls and read the story again. We need to know who we were. And this is why I think English and history are so interconnected and geography. And, you know, my church is doing a read the Bible in a year. So I've just finished the book of Genesis and I'm partway in Exodus now. And, you know, all the times that they say, and he named this place this to remember this, to remember this story. And so that when we think about, oh, we're going to this place, it's because, hey, granddaddy, whoever did this and this and this. And that's important to us because this and this, right? So I think that as we think about the way the world has moved in terms of its interpretive kind of frame, you know, when I was in college, there was this book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Oh, yes, right? I know this book. <laughs> right? But what is it? It's an apologetic method. That's right. That says if we just have a bunch of facts about Jesus or the Bible or whatever it is, by reading those facts, this is going to be the reason that you decide to follow Christ. Yeah. That may have been a mode that worked in some part of history. But I don't actually think it is. I really think people are much more persuaded. And this is why I think the example of scripture is fascinating, because it was even back then. People are really more shaped by the stories that surround them. And that's, I think, the stories of their family. I mean, we just spent a long time talking about my family and my upbringing and living in a military culture and 
all of those things. And those are stories that like literally formed who I am a lot more than the fact of I live nine places. Right. Except for in that nine places then turns into a story, right? Using something like therapy. Therapy is basically using story to help you understand yourself, right? And let's surface stories that your mother told you that were maybe not great. Yeah. Right. Or that your teacher told you in the third grade that you weren't in the smart group or that church told you about what it meant to be beloved or not. And so part of the book is, you know, the subtitle of the book is The Power of Story to Shape Our Faith. But that can go both ways. Mm. And I think story can be very deforming as well as it is forming. And so what I want us to think about is not should I read Shakespeare and Of course, you probably should. But more, why is it that that story has had such currency? Why does Frankenstein keep getting remade? That's right, yeah. Why do we keep coming back to these stories? Or why do we keep having this? We still read the Bible because Abraham and Sarah have issues in their story that I still have in mind. And my hope is that by seeing their story and thinking about how I interpret that helps me interpret mine. And so I think mostly the book is less about what to read. In fact, I don't care so much. Please read whatever or watch whatever. But think about what it is that that adherence to that story, Mm. where that's taking you. So an example I give in the book is romantic comedies. So my students love them, right? But we talk about, well, what has that, though, discipled you now into expecting? And I think stories really not only tell us who we are and who we aren't or who we should be, but they also give us lots of expectations. So when you get into middle age, you start hearing things that are weirdly related to narrative, like, well, that's not how it was supposed to be. Right. How do you know? Right. That's because you were assuming. I thought I would be somewhere else in my life by this time, or I would be an expert in something by this time. Right. Or our marriage would be this, or my child was going to be this, or whatever. And that's a narrative expectation. And so I think what we have to do is think about how the scripture and our faith gives us the kind of narrative expectations we should be having. Calvin We talk a lot about vocation, right? Obviously, we're working with people of college age who are really trying to think about what their life is going to be. And here they've come to a faith-based institution, and yet we still have all of these expectations, whether from our families or our culture or self-imposed, right? We tell ourselves stories that sometimes our parents would be appalled by, and they're like, where did you get that story? But somehow we picked it up. But it's like, oh, I have to be this in order to be successful. I have to be married. I have to be a doctor. I have to go on the mission field. Well, actually, the Bible doesn't teach us any of that, right? And so I talk in the book about, and nothing is wrong with any of those. And yet sometimes we are so unhappy because our narrative expectations and our way of interpreting the stories in which we're living are not in alignment with what the scripture tells us about who we are, about what our vocation needs to be, right? And so the hidden chapter of the book is really about how do we look at what the Bible tells me about my calling and how do I put that up against all of the stories that I'm hearing from all these different places that are going to tell me I'm unworthy because I haven't done this, that, or the other. And what does scripture actually tell me is important about who I am and what my calling is. And so I want to use story 
to kind of deconstruct bad stories, right? And I think that's why scripture is really valuable is it's a compendium of stories and it teaches us again and again and again and again over the course of our life to sort of think again about our own story. And it might've been in that middle part of your book. I kept thinking about Walter Brueggemann's The Prophetic Imagination because his book is going like, how were the Israelite prophets stretching people's imagination to actually understand what God's kingdom would be as opposed to the reality. And I felt the same kind of call from you. And in fact, you even said that Christian hope is a deeply creative act. And I loved that phrase. Can you just talk a little bit more about how Christian hope is creative? What does that mean? Well, I think, I mean, I really do admire uh, Brueggemann's work and I I do give him a sort of shout out early in the book. I was at a conference with him and and heard him speak. And I I do think that he's really getting at something that I'm also trying to kind of build on or, or just at least amplify. It's not a new idea for me, obviously. But I do think that that idea is that, again, it's what do you expect? And I think when he talks about the Israelites and they can't imagine that whatever the life is that they can't quite see yet, that they can't imagine yet, is going to be better than being a slave. So they're like, hey, let's go. I'd rather take the bad story that I know than the good story that I haven't quite been able to see yet. And so let's go back to Egypt. You know, surely that's better because I'm in control of it. And I think that narrative and our faith is a lot about control. Can we believe that something we don't control and didn't choose, right, is going to be better than what God can imagine for us? And so I love that one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is there at the end where it talks about that it's beyond what we can ask or imagine. And I think that that is a challenge to us to remember that God is so much bigger than our own, even our own, what we can think about, right? What I can even ask for, like God can do even more than that, but also more than I can imagine. And that part of why we read, part of why we look at history, why we continue to think about the lives of the saints, why we have testimonies, all these things that the church is built around is partly to increase my imagination and to say, oh my goodness, God did that there? Like, wow, that's amazing. All of a sudden, my imagination grows about what God is doing. And so I love the metaphor of like mosaics, that we have to all be a little piece of the mosaic. But God is making this ginormous mosaic. And each little piece is really important, but it's just the little piece. And when we decide that our little piece is the whole mosaic, we know. I talk in the first chapter about teaching Sunday school a lot. And I think one of the things that's challenging about that with little kids is, you know, I talk about how we had decided that we were going to, you know, be very serious and cover all the stories and not just, you know, and then they gave me Job. Tell the story of Job to children five years old to fifth grade. Really? Then they all died. Then he had, you know, I mean, or, and then the Israelites were so terrible that they all had to die off before they could go on the hi, kindergarten child. So one of the things I talk about in the book then is how do I approach that? And why does that make me uncomfortable? And what does that tell me about my actual theology, as opposed to the one that I can very easily say I believe? Hmm. And so I think as we move to your question about hope, 
I think if we believe we live in a world where a resurrection happened, we're saying there's a true story that Carpenter guy rose from the grave because he was divine and human. That should really change the way you think about a lot of things and think about your sense of possibility. Think about your the sense of what's possible in your own life, but also allow you to kind of be a little less anxious because there's all kinds of stuff that you haven't even imagined yet that God has in store for you. And that's kind of exciting. It's terrifying a little bit too, but I think it also is something where we really have a, it's a very exciting story because it's not this preset. So when I say this wasn't how it was supposed to be, praise the Lord, right? Because God wants so much more for me than I want for myself. Life is not this series of controlled choices. And then you it's things that happen, opportunities that arise, right? And then you live out your faith by seeing what your real theology is. What do you mm-hmm. really believe about God and God's providence for you? What do you really believe about other people that they are the image of God? Are you actually treating them like that? Or you just say you believe that? Right. And I think that's why when we hear scripture proclaimed at church, when we are reading it ourselves, when we're thinking about like, how do those stories help us really interrogate the real story that we're carrying inside? Next week, we will talk about not only the way that we live out our faith and how that reveals our theology, but also how to watch the people of the Bible live through their faith instead of just being exemplars of the faith. Thank you for sitting with us at the podcast table. These conversations are only possible because I have a whole team of people who financially support the podcast and some of my other projects. There are people like Lisa Nickel, Eric Cummins, Carrie and Scott Jenkins. They are the ones who make sure that you hear from a wide variety of guests from around the world. I would never be able to do this without them. So thank you, team. I produced the episode. Luke Bronner of Odd Parliament did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is always so good to be with you. And I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe and take care of each other and stay curious about the world around you.